Hello, listeners. Welcome back to a new episode of the Admin and Stir podcast. My name is Caitlin. And I'm Alyssa. And I am Emma. Yay. We are so glad that you joined us to listen to another episode of our podcast. It's been a crazy week. I haven't been able to stop thinking about that boat that's stuck in the Suez Canal. Like I've been hyper-focusing on that boat uh, for like a week now. So it's still stuck as far as I'm, as, as far as I know. Um, I don't know why I'm so obsessed with it, but. Oh yeah. It's really made the best memes. Like It has. It really has. That poor, that poor driver, whoever drove the boat. Um, I also have an, I have an appointment for a COVID vaccine next week, so I'm riding high uh, this week. Oh, that's exciting. But yeah, so we're in for some strange and exciting times. How have you two been? Oh, pretty good. I got my second COVID shot yesterday, and um, so far, no major side effects, except I do feel like I've been dead arm punched. Did you guys ever experience that in middle school? Yes. Oh yeah. So, but other than that, I really can't complain. How about you, Alyssa? Yeah, I've been good. I, I have a funny story for you guys. Actually, I went to Nuremberg last weekend um, and I haven't been outside of Munich or really my, my little flat much since I got here because we're still on a pretty heavy lockdown. Um, but my flatmates are getting married and they were going to pick up their wedding rings and they invited me to come along. So we're there in Nuremberg and they're like, oh, would you like to like walk around the city? And I'm like, yeah, I love this city. It's one of my favorite cities that I've been to in Germany. And uh, I hadn't been back for like eight years or so. So I wanted to walk around and kind of see everything. Um, They now have a Five Guys. Apparently Five Guys is like a hipster restaurant in Germany. It's, It's super bougie. Like it's, I mean, it's like high end. It's, it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. There was a line outside the restaurant to get in to give your order, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. And I took a picture. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're walking through the city and they're like, oh, do you want to go up to the castle? And I was like, yes, I love the castle. I love the view. And mind you, it's freezing cold, but I still wanted to go. So we're walking up to the castle and um, Cordelia, which is one, one of my flatmates, she um, had her dog with her, Ida, um, who is a, a labbie. And here labs are miniature. So she's like a smaller version of the American lab. And she's super cute. It has a lot of energy. She's only a year old. Um, so she was with us and she was excited about all the smells because she had never been in a downtown city before. So we're kind of going up to the castle and there's a wall at, at the castle where you can stand and look out to the city. And it's absolutely beautiful. Well, I'm kind of taking pictures, of course, typical tourist American. And Ida was sitting, you know, at, at the wall and looking up like, hey, I want to see. And I I mentioned it to Cordelia and she's like, oh yeah. And mind you, Ida has her own Instagram. So I was like, oh, this will be a fantastic Instagram photo. We'll get her paws up on the wall and her looking over. And so I'm getting ready to take a picture with my phone to get this great shot. And all of a sudden, Cordelia tells her, Ida, come here, come see. Ida jumps five or six feet in the air on top of this wall, which goes straight off into a street. Like it's really high. Like if you were to fall off this wall, you would die. There's just no way. There's no way you could survive. She lands perfectly on this medieval wall. And Cordelia and I are just shocked. We're, We're standing there we have no idea what to do. And all of a sudden we start screaming and we're pulling her leash to pull her off this wall. I, I'm pretty sure I had a cardiac arrest standing there. And all these Germans are standing at the wall, staring at us. Like, why are you people making so much noise? Not realizing the near death experience that had just happened. (laughs) 
So uh, Cordelia's fiance, Michael, walks up. He was on a work call and he goes, hey, how, how are things going? And we both just stare at him because he didn't even realize this, what had just happened. And he was standing like 10 feet away. So typical, um, you know, experience. (laughs) That's funny. Edith's a little daredevil, it sounds like. Oh yeah. The fact that, and I mean, she listened great because we did kind of tell her to like get up, but we were expecting her to get on her hind legs and look over the wall. Um, So yeah, we, we won't be, um, yeah, we won't be giving her the option to have any scenic views <laughs> from now on. <laughs> oh, man. Glad it was all turned out okay, though. That could have been awful. Yeah, it could have been really bad. Um, <laughs> but she landed like a cat. It was it was amazing. I love it. Yeah, animals are great. That's the moral of my week. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, we're, we're super excited to be back with a new episode of our podcast. Uh, we are continuing our season of Queens of Crime. And today we're going to be talking about the lives of African-American women working in New York's informal economy. And the informal economy is a term used to describe illegal or unlicensed industries and jobs. And these make up a vital sector of the New York economy. They do today, and then they also did when we're talking, which is the first few decades of the 1900s. Our discussion today is based on the fantastic work sex workers, psychics, and numbers runners, Black women in New York City's underground economy, written by historian LaShawn Harris, and published by Illinois University in 2016. Harris focuses on women living in Harlem who worked in three different professions within the underground economy, numbers runners or women who ran and operated illegal gambling rings, unlicensed or illegal psychics and spirit mediums, and sex workers. These women sought employment within the informal economy because it provided them with higher wages the ability to be their own boss, which is a plus, and more freedom to control when they worked and under what circumstances. So the first decades of the 20th century were a time of great movement and change for African-American women in the U.S. During these decades, many Black women migrated out of the South to escape the racism of Jim Crow segregation, and they settled in northern urban centers like Chicago or New York. But life in the North would not prove any easier for these women. They continued to face discrimination and racism often limited their employment opportunities to unskilled or domestic labor, um, for example, working as maids or nannies in the homes of white Americans. These women had to provide for themselves and their families on meager salaries, often as the sole breadwinner. Plus, their status as women made them susceptible to gendered and sexual violence within Northern urban centers as well. So to make ends meet, many women turned to employment within the underground and informal economy to make more money, to provide for their families, promote their own social mobility. Some women became quite successful with these within these industries. For instance, a woman named Stephanie St. Clair became famous within Black New York society for her work running, managing, and financing an illegal gambling ring in the 1920s and 30s. St. Clair became so powerful through her enterprise that not only did she wine and dine with New York's black and white elites, she challenged and beat back white organized crime syndicates who were attempting to expand their power into Harlem. St. Clair also used her influence to advocate for racial equality in Harlem. She she would take out newspaper ads to inform African-Americans of their voting rights, of their legal rights. She would donate money to charities, which were designed to aid Black communities. So she's very active in the community. And St. Clair was even at one point, she had a crazy life, was arrested. She was arrested several times for her illegal actions. And at one point, she even stood trial for the attempted murder of her cheating husband. So quite a crazy life for Stephanie St. Clair. Yeah, definitely. Her husband actually had his affair with another famous member of Harlem's informal economy, a notable psychic, um, Dorothy Madame Foufoutam Matthews. Quite quite the name. Um, Psychics like Madame 
Foo Foo Tom. Yeah, try to say that 10 times in a row, listeners. Um, she used their clairvoyant skills to help customers commune with the dead, select their latest gambling numbers, read fortunes, or perform, perform uh, ritual healings. So she was kind of a jack of all trades. Um, these women drew on Caribbean, Asian, and African spiritual methods and established supernatural parlors in their own homes. Uh, these spiritualists offered the men and women who consulted them hope for better relationships, economic success, or alternative forms of healing when they were ill. Like the psychics and numbers runners we have discussed, many Black women in early 20th century Harlem turned to the informal economy and the practice of sex work for increased economic and social opportunity. While some Black female sex workers worked as streetwalkers soliciting men who were out around town, many worked out of their own homes or apartments. This arrangement allowed these women to be their own boss, gave them greater control over who they would accept as clients, and provided them with some safety. While many sex workers in Harlem worked out of a need for more income, others used sex work as a way to experiment sexually or to liven up their social and sexual lives. But working in the informal economy did not mean that all was smooth sailing for these women. Black women were particularly vulnerable to arrests, uh, imprisonment as well. They were often given harsh sentences as punishments. They were made examples of by the legal system. And these types of labor were also dangerous for women and you know, sex workers, psychics and numbers runners all worked under the threat of physical or sexual violence. Likewise, participation in informal and illegal enterprises often led to these women being ostracized from, quote, proper society. And vice reformers in Harlem criticized women who participated in these industries. They believed that they tainted the respectability of the Black community. But nevertheless, Black women continued to play a pivotal role within New York's underground economy in these early decades of the 20th century. And we look forward to discussing these queens of crime in more detail. To set the stage, I guess, of what, what time period this is taking place is, you know, this is the first few decades of the 20th century, so 1910s through 1930s or so. And in the South, this was a time, you know, of Jim Crow segregation, of very strict separation of African Americans and white people, and, and racism, lynching was going, was, you know, very uh, common during this time. So the, the race, you know, what was going on racially in the South is a lot of tension in this time period. But what we don't talk about often is a lot of those same racist ideas are, are occurring in the North as well, that this is still a very racialized society, that the North was not perfect in how they thought of, you know, race relations. It, it wasn't necessarily in written down in law like it was in the South, but still the opportunities for these women up North would not have been, you know, particularly open either. And so I think that's important to kind of talk about as we start off this discussion. Yeah, I think that it's a very convenient falsehood to claim that racism only exists in a very specific geographic sphere because it completely denies the experiences of the many people of color who experience discrimination in all forms, you know, all, all around the United States. So, um, so I'm glad that we're pointing this out and I'm glad that that's something that LaShawn Harris points out in the book as well. And um, if I could read a little quote, like I'm a man in seminar who did not do the reading beforehand. <laughs> um, she writes on page 26 that Northern style racial prejudice and customary forms of race segregation further complicated Black people's financial circumstances and relegated them to crime infested sections. So Black urbanites, according to historian Thomas Sugru, faced a regime of racial prescriptions in the North that was every bit as deeply entrenched as the Southern system of Jim Crow. Economic injustice and pervasive discrimination knew no regional boundaries. Yeah, I, I, I really like that, Emma, because, you know, there's this misconception that once you get to the North, everything's hunky-dory and great. Um, and it's, it's not that way at all. And it, you know, it's hard for us to understand that, I think, because a lot of kids in their, um, what would you call it, middle school and high school education have this misconception of the North, that the, the North is the good guys, um, but it's not 
it's not black and white. It's very blurred um, in how racism is kind of ingrained in these systems. And that's what I loved about this book. It really pointed out certain um, jobs, encounters, um, parts of the city that you wouldn't normally think about um, on a daily basis as these, you know, racist hubs. Um, but racism was there, still is. Right, still is for sure. And it, and it played an important role in shaping these women's lives and that the reason so many of them joined this informal economy is because they couldn't get a good paying job outside of it, that African-American women in particular were often relegated to low paying, low quote unquote, low skill labor, working as domestics in houses doing lawn, working as laundresses, you know, working in, in some of these low paying positions. And because of that, they just couldn't afford to take care of their families or to take care of themselves and afford the rent that, you know, was high in, in New York at the time. And, and so what they did is they turned to these informal economy, they turned to crime in a, in a sense to, as a means of survival and as a means of ex having more economic opportunities to have more control over what they did as laborers. Often these were skilled professions, these running these numbers and doing all the calculations and dealing with money and, and that sort of things, or they were entrepreneurs, these women in their own rights. And so because of that, it offered them some more opportunities that they wouldn't have had because of the racialized nature of, of labor at this time. I feel like um, something that interests me about this book and made me want to, to think more about how Black women um, participate in the informal economy is thinking about sort of modern examples of women who also either have participated in this kind of behavior or talk about, you know, participating in the informal economy, like thinking about someone like Meg the Stallion, who's entire ethos is about getting a bag and um, which I love we love hot girl Meg around these parts like it's sort of this idea that black women have to have side hustles or side gigs or do what they can to eke out a living because there is so much against them and I think that's is still true in a lot of ways today um, as it was in the early 1900s yeah. And LaShawn Harris in the book draws those comparisons. She ends, I think, with talking about women who work as like hair braiders or, or do hairstyle in New York and, and elsewhere throughout the United States. These African-American women who have that skill and that specialty, they may not have a, a license to cut hair uh, or, you know, this proper, you know, quote unquote, proper certification, but they're still participating in this and they and they serve the community in an important way. Yeah, that's a really good point too, Caitlin, because the use of the term underground or informal economy rather than crime or, or some other way that like makes it seem criminal, I think um, is a good choice for this book and is something that I want to continue thinking about, you know, in the future when thinking about things like this, because informal economy doesn't mean necessarily that you're even doing something immoral or bad. It can be as simple as being a nanny without filing the right kind of paperwork. Yeah, I, I mean, I, when you all chose this book, I, I thought it was basically going to be mostly about prostitution and, you know, different, clearly um, illegal underground work. But like, there was a story, I think it's in the first chapter about Lillian Harris Dean, or she was called like the Goliath woman. And basically she runs a push cart um, and she serves Southern food in the North and people love it because they want some fried pig's feet or some fried chicken and you know, these, these comfort foods. And she was celebrated for this unique business that was originally, um, I think she, she ended up getting a license eventually, but it, originally it, technically was illegal. And that's not something I was thinking of going into this book. So I, I like that Harris, you know, focuses on a wide array of what you call kind of these in, informal 
economy, informal jobs, um, and the underground isn't necessarily what we think um, going into it. And even like dealing with the numbers runners, the the illegal gambling rings, which would have been illegal at the time, but now, like today, I don't think we would have considered we wouldn't consider it immoral um, necessarily to run these rings. Um, but it just kind of goes to show that it's very much shaped by the time period too, like what's considered illegal or even the psychics uh, were considered illegal or at least unregulated. And, and so because of that, they could get in some trouble for running their business, you know, offering these psychic or spiritual services. And so it's shaped by this 1920s, 1930s time period, what's considered uh, informal or, or illegal at the time. Yeah, it totally reminded me of um, the Netflix show Peaky Blinders. I, I I don't know if you you all have watched it, but you know it's it's like a Roma um, family, and basically they're numbers runners, um, and it kind of goes. Um, I, they're outside of London, I believe, but it's you know all about this family kind of starting as illegal numbers runners, and then they end up getting their certification to. Um, be, you know, their, their business is legal. And I, I kept thinking of that show as I was reading this book, like, oh, yeah, this is the same time period. Oh, okay. I, I see what's going on. And it makes characters like Stephanie St. Clair interesting in that they exist kind of and move between these two worlds where she's very much involved in the organized crime rings that we think of in the 1920s New York 1930s New York at the same time she's also involved in the you know urban elites of New York and she moves back and forth between these two groups and kind of uses both to sometimes she'll you know cater to one or the other to get to grow her business and I just think she's such a fascinating character and that she can move back and forth between those two worlds and kind of shows it shows the gray area between crime and respectability at this time and even today. I think it also it, to go off of that, it also shows that women weren't stupid. They didn't just belong in the domestic sphere. They they actually could wheel and deal and be sophisticated and figure out these different social spheres and how to navigate them to help themselves. Um, and I, I like that Harris focuses on that, that this circumventing of the domestic sphere to kind of take control of your own individuality and life um, and be your own boss. Um, and have more power. And I, I think that's great for this podcast because we've talked quite a bit about how women in crime lose power in a sense because of their gender. And here it's sometimes, you know, they, they don't have as much power, but in a way it's flipped. They're, they're trying to figure out ways and venues to, to get that power back. Um, and and to, be, to be an equal in these spaces. And I, I think that's really great. And it works. Like it doesn't obviously work for everyone, but for the people that it does, I mean, like Ella Fitzgerald was a numbers runner and sort of uses that before she has a music career, which is incredible. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So there is, there definitely is an element of empowerment here. And I think it's, Sometimes I worry about overstating empowerment historically, um, but it's also so depressing to just think uh, about women being oppressed all the time. And so if you can celebrate a moment, however small, then you should savor it. And this is a story about women in a way circumventing oppression and that they did face a lot of challenges because of their gender, because of their race, especially living in New York, but they found ways to work around that and to, even if it meant turning to, you know, illegal activities, officially illegal activities, that they were able to, you know, move around within that world and, and find their own sense of, of power and empowerment through these activities. At least some women did. Others were forced into it, especially if you're talking about sex workers. Some of them were forced into it out of necessity and, and never liked that they were involved in this. But others were like, this is a great way to make money and I can control my own income and source of labor and all that sort of stuff. So 
it, it presents an interesting picture of women and how they found themselves and their agency within this world. Yeah, and I, it, both of you also touch on this multifaceted um, power and also kind of oppression. And I noticed that throughout the book, like Harris underlines this empowerment, but also goes back to like, um, at, at one point in the book, um, it's talked about uh, the media and how they portray these women as like these black women are reckless and, you know, they're, they're completely destroying the domestic sphere or um, with the supernatural workers, the male supernatural workers were referred to as professors and masters of science and the women <laughs> weren't. So, so there is still kind of, you know, some sort of hierarchical, um, structure which you know emma talks about you know you just said oh i'm not sure if, how much we should um underline this empowerment but it you know it's there but there's also still you know these forces acting against these women and it, it makes their story um that much more elaborate and intricate to, to look at these different social spheres and how they're kind of pushing and pulling against each other yeah, Alyssa, you make a really good point. Um, and, and especially to underline what you said about these women in the media, there's sort of these depictions of them going, like of sex workers going through their victims' pockets and wallets and stealing things while the men are asleep. And um, one thing that, that that made me think of, and I hate that I relate everything to pop culture, but that's just how my brain is oriented, apparently. Um, but it, it does remind me of sort of uh, major pushback against Cardi B for admitting that when she was a sex worker, she basically drugged men and took cash from their wallets. And, um, and that was so, which I, obviously we're not endorsing that kind of behavior, but the way that the media latched onto that story for weeks and weeks, and even still, I feel like it's not something that, like, it'll still get mentioned in the comment section or, or at the at the bottom of the story. And so, you know, I do feel like there is empowerment there. And it's, I feel like it's a lot of times black women trying to eke out what they can in a system that does not allow them, does not want them to survive pretty much. And then they sort of engage in behaviors that are not ethical in order to do that. And then the media sort of latches onto the, to the unethical part of, you know, stealing, but not the unethical part of racism against black women. Yeah, that's a really good point about how the media picks and chooses what they criticize and what they don't. Um, I think she talks about that a little bit when you're talking about um, kind of who the, who the community would criticize as well for participating in this economy and that they would often, these women would be criticized by their neighbors or people who you know were, were fighting for more um, respectability quote-unquote for the community but at the same time these people were also the ones who were participating in some of the illegal gambling and that like they would uh, churches would run kind of you know these these gambling um, games and sort of things too so it was just kind of some of the the irony that that she talks about about who's they're both criticizing but also benefiting from the system as well which I found was was really interesting. Yeah, I like the way that she talks about respectability as sort of a malleable thing for the people in this world, which is not always the way that you see respectability talked about, especially in historical works. Yeah, a lot of this just kind of remind me of like a, a, a Janice or like a two-faced, like two, two heads, you know, um, because uh, the critics are involved. <laughs> And it's, it's, a, it's a lot of today, too, like, just to go back to your media point on Cardi B, I mean, they're choosing what they're going to report on because it benefits them. But, you know, it's, it's questionable. The whole, the whole respectability of it is just, I don't know, it was striking to me. And this is way out of my depth, because I do the history of medicine. And, but um, I, I did like, you know, the, some of the, the healing, um, facts that she brings up and kind of this hierarchy within supernatural healing and um 
illegal healing. And, you know, it's, it, you see a lot of that, not just in New York, but Germany and Europe. So her sections on healing were interesting because she talks about how often these women would lack access to, to medical care because of racism, because of lack of money. And so they would turn to these other women who would participate in, in these supernatural healings. And it offered them another outlet to seek help and to, to have some hope uh, for, for health and, and for healing. And, and I thought that was interesting that she brought that up and, and, and discussed it kind of within the context of 1920s Harlem. Oh yeah, and you see that trend going from the, the 19th century into the 20th century and s- still continuing today. I mean, I know plenty of uh, people in these rural areas that focus on local healers that technically aren't licensed up to our standards today, um, but it's it's a, a matter of trust, accessibility, um, affordability. So, it, you know, a, a lot of these... Um, underground healing rings that she touches on still has, you know, quite an impact today and is still present. We might not see it in the media um, or or really know about it, but it's there. Uh, So, you know, this is interesting and it's, it's, um, I don't know, uh, impactful today. It's, it's stuff that we should think about. Um, even racism in medicine, which is becoming um, a big issue because of COVID, people people are actually starting to confront um, the racism that is still ever present in medicine. Um, and th- th- there's a lot of African American people who are very wary of getting the COVID vaccine um, and probably still will be, and rightfully so, uh, because if you if you look at their history with um, official medicine, um, as we would call it in, in the States, uh, it's not a great experience. And I, I like that she kind of shows that, you know, th- there are other sides too, to um, their encounter with healing and they needed to find other outlets um, to be able to survive. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Alyssa. This this book really does a good job of presenting issues that are are still relevant and, and unfortunately continue to be relevant today. And um, if, you, if you are interested in learning more about racism in medicine, I think we would recommend Deirdre Cooper Owens's Medical Bondage, which is a great one. Um, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we talked about it in our last season. We mentioned it. It's a lot. <laughs> great work, yeah. Yeah, relevant was the word I was trying to think of. But speaking of books we would recommend, um, one thing that I love that we get to do when we focus on a particular monograph is to to look at the other historians that have influenced the creation and the research of this book. And then how does this book fill a gap in the scholarship? For those who uh, were not brought up around academia, that is something that you want to do, um, which is not something that I knew before going to grad school, but here it is. Yeah, I had no idea either, so. But she cites, um, you know, a good deal of historians and many of them are themselves black women who are sort of doing the work of recovering black women's history. So um, she cites people like Tara Hunter, uh, Talitha LaFloria, who I think we're going to talk about um, one of her books at some point, and Sarah Haley. And she says that these scholars or these authors challenge scholars to reconceptualize the diverse ways in which 20th century black women earned a living wage and how their labor, both free and imprisoned, contributed to New South and Northern ideas about labor and modernity and industrialization, which I think is is a topic that will continue to be relevant as long as we live in an industrialized society. Like these are going to be issues that continue to plague us. And so this research is really relevant. Yeah, and and she really does a great job of expanding what is involved when we talk about labor in that often these histories focus on the formal economy. They talk about, you know, women as 
domestic laborers or working as laundresses is what Tara Hunter's work is about. But what Harris does is she expands that. She said, we need to think about labor in a broader sense. We need to look at those who weren't licensed or who didn't have official, who wouldn't report this money on their taxes kind of things, which makes it difficult in a certain sense to do this kind of research. And she has to rely on really interesting sources, including newspapers and arrest records and all sorts of bit more fragmentary types of sources, but she does a good job of linking all that together into this narrative to tell the story of these women who've been largely forgotten. I mean, we talk about Al Capone and we talk about, you know, these other kind of famous men, male mobsters who ran New York at this time in Chicago, but we don't talk about Stephanie St. Clair, who was just as powerful in certain ways. And so they've been largely forgotten this part of their history. And so I think that she does a great job of reintroducing some of those women and shows how important they were within running this informal economy in New York City. And I hope this precipitates any accusations of like girl boss feminism, because I feel like there's this idea or there might be pushback about, you know, don't romanticize criminals, but we romanticize those mob leader guys like crazy. Like, oh my gosh, there's, there is so much romanticization of individuals who were actually probably committing far worse crimes than any of the women in this book. I mean, when uh, Stephanie St. Clair shot Hamid, she didn't kill him. He didn't die. So she's not a murderer. Yeah, that's right there better than Al Capone. And I mean, just look at all the movies that are so famous about these mobsters. There's, you know, Goodfellas and The Godfather and all sorts of, um, you know, these men characters who are very much romanticized and idealized in these. And, and yet, you know, they did a lot worse things in certain sense. And in a way, I think that goes... It speaks to a lot of the same issues we've been talking about throughout this podcast, which is how do we remember women as criminals or do we remember them at all? Why are they not as famous sometimes? And so I think it, it speaks to that same question of, of how, how we remember these women and, and how they participated as criminals, queens of crime themselves. Well, it's, it's interesting, like you said, because the men are romanticized. But if we mention these women in a more positive light, we might get pushback and criticism. Um, so it's it's kind of an interesting dynamic to think about. And we've, we've talked about this in almost every episode in some way, shape, or form. Just because these people are women, um, there's a different view towards their crimes. I mean, think back to last week. Um, poor Eileen Warnos. I mean, nobody was coming to help her. Um, but if a man were to have committed the same crimes for some sort of vigilante reason, I mean, she she claimed self-defense, but in a way, if you think if you think about her crimes, it was sort of had it had like a vigilante flair to it. I mean, these these men were trying to commit a crime on her and her body um so i mean it, it just it just makes you think twice about how we see women historically especially dealing with women as sex workers something that applies to eileen Wernos and something that applies to these women as well in new york in that they're often more stigmatized in history as criminals as temptresses you know as quote degrading the moral fiber of of these communities, as opposed to, you know, someone going around murdering or running drugs or, or even illegal alcohol, you know, we, we so romanticize the speakeasy at the same point. And, and I think that's an interesting kind of gendering of what crimes, how do we weigh guilt and, and certain crimes are considered more, um, more guilt, more damaging quote unquote to society and respectable society and sex workers are kind of put into that category and it's i think for historians it becomes a problem of 
who feels safe enough to leave sources behind as well. So it's like people who feel more comfortable in their position as, as in their privilege, I guess, being so privileged that you sort of avoid being over-policed as black women in New York City were at this time. It's sort of, um, and Harris writes about this too, where she talks about black women informal laborers absence from the historical record um, because unlike their middle-class counterparts, informal sector workers did not consciously leave behind diaries and journals um, or any evidence chronicling their inner lives. They did not believe that their lives or laboring imprints were of any importance to the world and were far more concerned with their socioeconomic conditions. And, um, and then she says, you know, when it came to their labor, these women were trying to keep it purposely concealed in most cases as well. And so it's really the difference between sort of these, I'm thinking like, um, even, even like John Dillinger level crimes where he very clearly identifies himself as a criminal versus these women who are trying to operate in as much silence as possible because they were already so heavily suspected of being criminals by virtue of their race and by their, their sex. Yeah, I compare it to Helen Jewett who we talked about was such a prolific writer and that she romanticized her job and her profession so much that she became almost the star in her own romance novel. And that is such a different, different time period, of course, but also she's white, which, which makes a difference. And, and it kind of plays into that idea of she was romanticized for her work, whereas these women are, you know, demonized for it in a certain sense. And it's obviously, it's a class thing too. Like Helen Jewett made a lot of money for a single woman of her time. So she was pretty comfortable. She had time to do things like that. And, you know, a good deal of the women in, in our book today just did not have the opportunity. So they had other jobs or other responsibilities and that they did. And they did this work on the side to make some money. I mean, this is the gig economy. Like this... This is essentially making earrings to sell on Etsy and then forgetting to file your independent business tax documentation if you make a certain amount. And um, and I think that's really interesting. I sort of hate that this is still something that we have to deal with. Yeah, we've circled back to it, the gig economy. That you know, Now would these women be driving Ubers on the weekend after they're done teaching classes you know as teachers or, or something which you hear about that we're back to this gig economy yeah or like keeping children in an unlicensed daycare in your home because you can't afford daycare for your own children right exactly and she talks about that i think doesn't she it comes up in the book mm -hmm. that this was common at the time baby farms come up in the in the book too yes just a flashback to you know a few episodes ago right these are not quite the amelia dyer baby farms <laughs> no but when i saw baby farms I, oh baby farms <laughs> <laughs> and we're not talking about the cabbage patch farm exactly <laughs> right <laughs> so, so we talked about like some of the healing stuff and how it's still around today. And I kept thinking of like the essential oil um, selling, uh, you know, within these communities or the crystals. I thought those two um, as being part of that kind of gig economy again, hearkening back to um, these kind of spiritual faith healing kind of thing. Wow, social stratification really be getting bad, huh? <laughs> uh, I've had one interaction with in essential oils in that I was in a flute lesson with my fabulous flute professor, uh, Dr. Sandra Lunty in, um, back in, um, Louisiana in undergrad. And I was, couldn't get some piece or something. And I was kind of getting, you know, freaked out about it and starting to cry and all. And she's like, here, I've got this essential oil that will, is supposed to be for calming. And so she put it on my hand or whatever. 
and all I just I must have been allergic to it or something because I just started sneezing over and over and over again no. and she's like, okay 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 this is not working for you this is not working we are gonna wash it off and so it's just that's my one um experience <laughs> with essential oil that's so fantastic wow. I've never used them since. So I'm sure they work for some people, but they do harken back in a sense to these um, type of psychics and, and spiritual healing and, and that sort of thing. Alternative types of medicine that these women were participating in. And we see that again today, that women are the ones who are often involved in these businesses. But I think it goes right back to exactly what Alyssa said, which is that discrimination in the medical field is often perpetuated against women and against people of color. And so it does stand to reason that, for example, women who have had a traumatic birth experience might choose to not give birth in a hospital again. And you can understand that behavior, I think. And it's sad. One of the things that I think is most interesting about studying the early 20th century, so like the teens, the 20s and the 30s, is that so much of that cultural, it feels so long ago, right? But so much of that cultural ethos still remains, even if it's been transposed in different ways. And so to me, you know, reading things about how the women in this book conducted their business reminds me of you know, later cultural artifacts of, of New York City, like, like Paris is burning, for example, and sort of the ways in which, you know, women and people of color and LGBTQ people are marginalized, and how they still find ways, despite that marginalization, to survive and to survive in invisible ways as well, I think is really powerful. And that's something that that I really like um, about choosing a specific monograph because it allows you to focus in on a particular time period and see how it relates so strongly. So were there any moments like that for you guys where you felt like, I mean, I know we've talked about this a lot, but where you felt like, you know, this is something that is relevant to me or to people I know. I thought the, the activism side of it was interesting and, and, the way that these women use their it is I'm thinking particularly Stephanie St. Clair, but then also some of the other women who became these entrepreneurs at this time used kind of the power and influence that they had to promote the African-American community, even as they were often ostracized because they weren't, you know, quote unquote respectable. They still worked to advance their community in a way I thought that played into some of the activism that we still see today and that these people use internet fame or you know influencers or women who often take on this activist the labor of activism and they do it through informal means often through hashtags through posting on instagram and social media or tiktok even and you see often women and african-american women are taking up this types of labor and that they're the ones promoting um, activism in, in those sorts of ways and you're starting to see it in the Asian American community too with uh, with the growing awareness uh, surrounding those hate crimes too and so you're, you're seeing women taking up this mantle I guess of activism men participated in it as well but you start to see women in the forefront in some of these social media aspects of of this type of environment yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Caitlin, because I remember, I guess, circa 2014, the, the primary response to police violence against Black people was mainly talking about young Black men. And I remember, like, I think the statement that President Obama gave at the time was specifically young Black men. And I, I think it's really good that in the past few years, there's been pushback from that idea because obviously black women are, are targets of police violence and have been for a long time. And I think this book demonstrates that as well. Yeah. And that these women were, we mentioned it in the introduction, but were often targeted by the police and, and made examples of, and got these harsh sentences or were kind of publicly shamed for when they were caught. 
and and you kind of see those threads running through today and through all women criminals as well. I mean, we've talked about that with Eileen Wernos, who was made an example of because of her actions. And, and somehow women often, perhaps because they're seen as so unusual, bear the brunt of, of some of that um, punishment. Yeah, there's like a, a double standard. Okay, well, we're about out of time today and about talked out. Uh, thanks to LaShawn Harris for writing this book. It was a great book and we really enjoyed reading it. It's on my comps list, so I got to check that off the list, which is always exciting. My comprehensive exams, uh, for those of you who are listening, probably don't know what that is, but it's just I have to read a lot of books. Anyway, uh, but thank you all for listening to our Admin and Stir podcast. I had a great time chatting with you, Emma and Alyssa, as always, about these historical women. Admin and Stir podcast is a podcast dedicated to the discussion of women and gender in history. New episodes from our second season, Queens of Crime, are posted bi-weekly on Spotify and SoundCloud, so check those out. Our episode next time will take a cultish turn as we look at the Nexium organization. A cult disguised as a multi-level marketing scheme. It was popular in the late 90s and early 2000s and is infamous for its ties to sex trafficking and sexual abuse, along with extortion, forced labor, money laundering, and fraud. It was a pretty awful cult. So it should be an interesting, if dark and depressing, episode. So stay tuned for that. It should be fun. For more information on previous and upcoming episodes, check out our website at adminandstir.wixsite.com. Keep up with us on Instagram and Twitter at admin and stir. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask us, please send them via DM or email us at admin and stir at gmail.com. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.